Welcome to Off Message Season 2. I'm your new host, Isaac Dobert, Chief Washington Correspondent here at Politico. Our guest for this episode is Hakeem Jeffries, who's a congressman from Brooklyn and whom I've actually known for the better part of a decade back when he was first running for an assembly seat and I was covering New York politics. He got himself to Congress in 2012 and he's been steadily on the move since then. For this new Congress, he's been named one of the three heads of the Democratic Policy and Communications Committee, which means that he's leading Democratic messaging as they try to figure out what to do next. That is a big question for this party in an existential crisis as they try to take on President Donald Trump and get themselves back from the brink of near extinction. But last weekend, Jeffries found himself scrambling to JFK Airport in New York, working with the families of people who'd landed in the United States only to find themselves detained as a result of Trump's immigration ban. Sitting in his office uh, on the sixth floor of the Longworth Building here in Washington, we talked about that experience, how he thinks Democrats modulate their response to Trump, He said the party needs to not follow Mitch McConnell's example when he said his priority was to make Obama a one-term president, though I did point out to to Jeffries that his top priority seems to be getting Trump out of the White House himself. And he also talked about whether Democrats made a mistake by not focusing on keeping Steve Bannon out of the White House from the day he was announced, and they erupted then and said they'd never let it happen, and then they moved on. So here's Congressman Hakeem Jeffries. Enjoy. You call President Trump's executive order reading from your comments at the press conference on Sunday, uh, reckless, unconstitutional, unsavory, and an un-American effort. Uh, so why is it each of those? <laughs> well, this country was founded on the principle of religious freedom. That was a foundational principle of our founding fathers and very important to the birth of this great nation. Many who had come to America had fleed religious persecution over in England. Yeah. Uh, and in Western Europe. And so that was a premise of the republic that was eventually created. Donald Trump made clear uh, throughout the entire previous year that he planned on implementing what he phrased as a Muslim ban. And what he did with this executive order was follow through on the promise that he made on the campaign trail. So to you, it's a Muslim ban? It absolutely is a Muslim ban. It applies to seven countries that are predominantly Muslim. And there is no basis uh, to conclude that it actually is designed to keep us safe. Most people understand, in dealing with the very real threat of terrorism in America and across the world, uh, that homegrown, radicalized individuals in the United States present the greatest degree of concern. Mm -hmm. Every single law enforcement entity that deals with the threat of terrorism in the United States of America has drawn that conclusion. And so what this order essentially does is inflame people across the world, demonize an entire religion, and most significantly, not do anything to improve the safety and security of the American people because it doesn't deal with the issue of homegrown terrorists. Does it make you worry that this ban is going to be expanded, that there are going to be more countries that are put onto this, uh, more stringent religious tests, those sorts of things? Well, to the extent that Steve Bannon seems to be in total control of what's going on in the United States of America right now, we should all be worried about the first 10 or 11 or 12 days simply being the beginning Mm -hmm. of an extreme hard right turn in a manner that is reckless and irresponsible. 
Do you think that when, when Steve Bannon was uh, named for the position of chief strategist in uh, December, there was a, um, a moment of outcry where people said, oh, well, maybe we need to uh, hold everything up. A lot of Democrats were saying that. And then that faded and moved on to other things that Democrats were upset about. Was that a mistake? Should Democrats have mobilized more against Steve Bannon then? Well, you'll continue to see mobilization against Steve Bannon. The challenge is that he was appointed as White House strategist. And so we all raised our voices as it relates to how outrageous uh, that assignment was to put a white supremacist sympathizer in the White House. Uh, But, of course, it is Donald Trump's prerogative. It does illustrate the point. Uh, But there was stuff people said then, uh, well we can't let him go forward with anything else. we got to stop this, uh, from Steve Bannon, from getting into the West Wing. And then there were other things that people uh, moved on to. It seems like that uh, is a pattern that we've seen a lot with Trump, both as a candidate and now as president, where he does things and Democrats say they're outraged and they're not going to do anything about it. And then uh, something else happens and they move on to that outrage. And the, the thing that they were outraged about gets left behind uh, so, so I mean, the, given given the concerns that you and others have about Bannon running things now, I wonder if that's an example of where there's a question of, uh, from from your perspective, losing focus uh, and, and the dangers that that can pose. The problem is that there are so many things to be outraged about as it relates to the Donald Trump administration. It's hard for Americans to keep track. That doesn't mean uh, that when a new incident occurs and some interim attention is spent in trying to deal with the latest disgrace coming from 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, that prior incidents that are objectionable have been forgotten. It is going to be important for us to frame the actions that have occurred across the board from the Trump administration into a broader narrative that the American people can understand. Mm -hmm. But again... You know, they are this unconstitutional, un-American-like behavior mm-hmm. that I believe we've seen from the Trump administration. Uh, and we're just two weeks in. We're just two <laughs> weeks in. Listen, it took Richard Nixon six years to provoke a constitutional crisis in the United States of America. It's taken Donald Trump approximately 10 days. Right. And so this is unprecedented and extraordinary in the manner in which he has engaged in trying to reshape what America looks like. And it's particularly troubling when you think about the fact, Isaac, that Donald Trump didn't win the popular vote. He lost the popular Mm -hmm. vote. A majority of people in America didn't vote for him. They voted against him. He's an electoral college president. He doesn't have any serious mandate. And as he indicated on the night that he won the election, that he plans to bring the country together. Mm -hmm. But everything that he's done since uttering those words have essentially had the impact of tearing us further apart. Should he be impeached? No, I don't think that uh, we're at an impeachment mm-hmm. uh, level at this particular point in time. But he should be critiqued. Mm-hmm. He should be scrutinized. He should be called out. And we'll see what the investigations yield, particularly as it relates to the interference in the election by the Russians. Mm-hmm. And whether there was close coordination uh, with allies of Donald Trump, that investigation is proceeding. Mm-hmm. When it concludes, we'll be in a position to evaluate whether something extraordinary mm-hmm. happened 
uh, that merits further scrutiny and potentially action. Let's talk about your weekend. You spent a lot of it at the airport. What, how did that come about? What, what happens? Your phone rings and you hear that there are people stopped up. But tell us what, what went down. Well, we got word once the executive order came down uh, that there were people who were being detained at JFK Airport. And the initial wave uh, of members of Congress consisted of Nydia Velasquez and Jerry Nadler, mm-hmm. uh, who dealt uh, with the customs officials and the lawyers very early on on Saturday, and they did a tremendous job. Mm-hmm. Uh, it then became clear uh, that we needed to make sure that we saturated mm-hmm. uh, JFK with congressional coverage uh, as much as possible throughout the weekend as we worked through getting the additional detainees mm-hmm. released to their families. Uh, and so other members such as Gregory Meeks and Yvette Clark and Adriano Espaillat showed up at JFK on Saturday evening. I took the so you guys are working out shifts. Sunday morning shift <laughs> uh, after receiving an urgent call that there was concern that some of the, the detainees at JFK on Sunday mm-hmm. might be deported and sent back to the Middle East on some of the afternoon flights. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so when I received that call, I was finishing up a church service in East New York uh, and was planning on going to JFK that afternoon, changed plans, went earlier Mm -hmm. because of the concern that people could be sent back as early as a 1 p.m. flight Mm -hmm. uh, that I believe was en route uh, to a destination in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And there was real concern that people would be deported in defiance of the federal court order that had been issued out of the Eastern District of New York on Saturday evening. Did it matter to be there as a member of Congress or as a lawyer? Well, it was important, (laughs) I think, as a member of Congress, primarily because uh, House of Representatives members and senators were the only individuals Mm -hmm. that the customs officials were dealing with at JFK. Right. And so we were able to play a role of communicating concerns that had been expressed by the family members and the lawyers directly to customs officials and work hard to hold customs officials accountable for complying with the federal court order that prohibited them from sending Mm -hmm. anyone back. And that also, uh, unfortunately left the door open to detaining legal permanent residents who were being imprisoned in their home country. That was shameful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we were able to work through those issues as well at JFK collectively. Tell me about some of the people that you met. Well, I think Sergeant Al Saidi, uh, who was stationed at Fort Bragg, mm-hmm. who uh, was born in Iraq, spent about seven years uh, as an interpreter for the United States military, helped to save lives mm-hmm. and put his own life on the line. Uh, then was granted uh, special permission through the visa process to come to the United States, uh, where he then enrolled in the United States military, Mm -hmm. 82nd Airborne uh, in the Army, uh, and is serving this country incredibly well. Uh, As part of that process, had applied uh, and spent several years filling out paperwork Mm -hmm. to get his parents uh, into the United States of America. Mm -hmm. Uh, His parents were still in Iraq. His parents were still in Iraq over the last several years. Mm Uh, while he had come uh, to mm-hmm. the United States and joined the military. 
that paperwork was eventually approved and they were scheduled to come into this country at some point in early to mid January. Mm -hmm. His father suddenly passed away Mm -hmm. tragically. Uh, And so his mom's trip into the United States was delayed temporarily Mm -hmm. so that the father could be, you know, appropriately mourned uh, and buried. Uh, And so as a result of a tragic set of circumstances, her flight was eventually delayed until the day that the executive Mm -hmm. order was issued. Like many others, while the mom was in the air, the executive order came down, and upon her arrival at JFK early Saturday morning, she was detained. That was a particularly troubling so case. Is, is he there at the airport to meet her? He is was absolutely a, there right? at the airport. He flew. And so she landed when? She landed about 7 or 8 a.m. on Saturday morning. And then was just stuck at JFK for that whole time. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, um, she was stuck at JFK. When I got to the airport, he was there, had been there for several hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, had been there overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, limited information. Had, had he heard anything from, her mo- from his mother? He was aware that his mother was detained. There were some officials who were working with him on the army side of the equation. Mm-hmm. And at one point there was concern that she actually was going to get sent back to Iraq. Mm-hmm. Uh, but thankfully, when the federal order came down on Saturday evening, that was at least suspended mm-hmm. in terms of the deportation possibility. Uh, but the notion of someone who had worked hard to save American lives in Iraq yeah. as an interpreter, lawfully came into the United States, joined the Army, is serving in the decorated 82nd Airborne mm-hmm. down in Fort Bragg, and that his mother can be caught up in this situation, detained, mm-hmm. shackled, not necessarily treated with the dignity. So and she was respect. shackled. That's our understanding. Yeah. Uh, as Did you see her at all when she attorney. was in detention? No, I didn't see her. I wasn't able to see any of the individual right. detainees, uh, but we did speak to the individuals who were at Customs mm-hmm. who were uh, managing the situation mm-hmm. and going over the names of individuals who were detained mm-hmm. because all of our information came from family members and lawyers who were on the outside mm-hmm. and members of Congress uh, who were there at JFK would have to go in on the inside to go through the individuals to confirm that they were being detained, make sure they weren't being sent back, and then working to advocate for their immediate release. And then, but you're with the son, right? I was with the son. What on the is he? Is he just distraught? What? What? What's his mode through this? Well, what amazed me about Sergeant Alcidi and the other family members who were there. So he had. It wasn't just him. It was a number of people. I interacted with folks. Um, who had family members from... Oh, sorry, but he was the only family member for his mother. The sergeant was... That, right? I, that I met. Yeah, okay. I think he may have had other family members, yeah. perhaps. Uh, but he was the only one who I interacted mm-hmm. with. But there were other family members uh, of detainees who had come from, in one case, uh, the Sudan, in another case, mm-hmm. Somalia, in another case, uh, Iran... Uh, in Iraq, of course. Sure. But every single family member conducted himself with such grace and dignity and respect for this country and the rule of law uh, under fire. I only wish that we would see such grace, dignity, and respect coming from some of the folks at 1600 Pennsylvania <laughs> Avenue. I was angry. I was a member of Congress. This sure. was insane to me. 
that you have lawful permanent residents and you have family members of active duty U.S. military personnel being detained uh, in such a disgraceful mm-hmm. fashion. But these individuals, the family members, they were concerned, they were worried, they were alarmed, but they were graceful in were the they, manner in which they conducted was themselves. Was the sergeant, was he, what did he say to you? Did he say, I, I can't believe that this is going on, this is the, was, what the country that I came to? Is he saying those sorts of things? Not at all. Is he crying? Is he, what's going on? Well, there were family members throughout the weekend who, of course, were crying. But uh, the sergeant conducted himself uh, in a manner where his primary concern was just trying to get information and get his mother released. Right. You also have to um, remember, Isaac, that a lot of the people who were being detained spoke limited or no English. Mm -hmm. And so the notion of arriving, expecting to be able to be processed through Mm -hmm. immigration and then reunited with loved ones and family members. And then having that abruptly interrupted, not necessarily even able to process Mm -hmm. through the language barrier, being detained uh, and having limited access to lawyers and or family members uh, had to be traumatic and shocking. Yeah. And I think it was Sean Spitzer, who's the White House mm-hmm. press, secretary. press secretary, who said this was a temporary inconvenience. Mm-hmm. Let him be subjected or let his family members be subjected to this type of so-called temporary inconvenience and then report back to the American people about how problematic it is. We have a Fourth Amendment, mm-hmm. uh, for instance, that is designed to limit the ability of government to overreach into the lives of everyday Americans. That was put into the Constitution for a reason, because the founding fathers didn't view government overreach, mm-hmm. particularly in the law enforcement space, as a temporary inconvenience. Mm-hmm. Given all of this and the concerns that you have about the Trump White House's understanding of the Constitution and the law, what do you say to Senate Democrats who are thinking about voting for Neil Gorsuch? To, to confirm him? Well, every individual senator is going to have to make their own... Sure, but what, what, what do you think that they should keep in mind about these things? Well, you don't have a vote in this because uh, the House doesn't get a vote. But uh, th- there are two Democratic senators from New York. Uh, there are a lot of Democratic senators who are thinking about this, and these issues are getting uh, integrated with each other. There are concerns about the executive order and other things going on, and this vote uh, for the Supreme Court, which, of course, is probably six, eight weeks off at least. Well, I think that he needs to be scrutinized in terms of what his views are. This is a very important uh, seat. One, so that there's a full complement of justices on the United States Supreme Court. What Senate Republicans did was reckless and irresponsible. They robbed Mm -hmm. Barack Obama of a constitutionally provided Supreme Court pick. Mm Mm-hmm. Barack Obama ran in 2012. He was reelected by the American people. He actually won a majority of the popular vote, unlike Donald Trump. And yet somehow Senate Republicans concluded that he was basically entitled to a three-year term, not a four-year term. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we have to understand the context that has brought us into this moment. Mm -hmm. And there's a reasonable expectation amongst many of the American people that whoever is nominated to fill 
the vacancy that was not filled wrongfully as a result of tremendous Republican obstruction should themselves as a nominee be subjected to mm-hmm. extreme vetting. Mm-hmm. Right. They're refugees that Donald Trump wants to extremely vet, <laughs> even though there's no evidence mm-hmm. that they present a meaningful threat to the American people. The American people are more likely a hundred times more likely, I should say, to be struck by lightning than to be victimized by a refugee mm-hmm. in the United States of America. Those are the facts. Yeah. So a Supreme Court justice has been given lifetime tenure upon confirmation. Mm-hmm. They should be subjected to the highest level of scrutiny. And I expect that Senate Democrats will do just that. What, um, what does all this tell you about uh, we are two weeks in to the Trump presidency. There are three years and 11 and a half months left of this term. What, what do you think is ahead? What's your, are you concerned? Are you worried? Are, are, is this just the beginning? Do you think that this was uh, a couple of weeks of action that then will stabilize as the conventional wisdom seems to be in some minds still? Well, unless Donald Trump changes course, and decides to work toward bringing the American people together and finding common ground, uh, then it is reasonable for many people to conclude that his administration may present the greatest existential threat to our democracy as we know it since Richard Nixon. Mm -hmm. It is my hope that will not be the case. But Nixon uh, was a very different president except for... uh what happened around Watergate. There were not these concerns, as you say, from the outset uh, of Nixon. Is Donald Trump... Um, he, the line that you just used, I believe is the greatest threat since Nixon. Is he more of a threat than Nixon? Well, that remains to be seen. <laughs> but we do know that Richard Nixon did have governmental experience. Right. He was a vice president under Eisenhower, yeah. although they did not necessarily seem to have high regard for each other. <laughs> uh, he also served in the Congress, I mm-hmm. believe, prior to being elevated senator, to vice yeah. president as a senator. Uh, and so he did have some governmental experience. Mm-hmm. He had a very mixed record. But Richard Nixon did also run a very divisive, mm-hmm. racially charged campaign in 1968, which was the precursor to the manner in which he conducted himself as president. Mm-hmm. And so the analogy to Richard Nixon doesn't just relate to the eventual way in which the Nixon administration crashed and burned in scandal, Mm -hmm. but it also relates to the manner in which both Nixon and Donald Trump came into office. Mm -hmm. There's another similarity, which is there was a period of hope and change that preceded the election of Richard Nixon. Mm Mm-hmm. The 1964 Civil Rights Act Mm -hmm. helped uh, to effectively eradicate Mm -hmm. Jim Crow. The 1965 Voting Rights Act expanded our democracy to everyone. The 1968 uh, Fair Housing Act dealt with discrimination in the housing market. The Great Society programs brought us Medicare and Medicaid and a minimum wage and school breakfast and so many other changes. And so that's the comparison to the Obama years, right? And And so there's a great period of hope. Followed by a dramatic change in direction and the prospect of doom and gloom. Mm -hmm. 
We've had the exact same thing. The election of Barack Obama. So in your mind, so Obama is Lyndon Johnson and John F. Kennedy. Well, I don't want to. They're all different presidents. But if you think about at least where many people were at in Mm -hmm. the country in the 60s, which, you know, there was a lot going on in that decade. Mm -hmm. But there was seeming progress, particularly in the face Mm -hmm. of a very troubled racial past. Mm -hmm. That was represented in the legislative changes that were made, uh, the civil rights movement, the leadership of Dr. King, and mm-hmm. then in 1968, it all changed. Yeah. There was a similar period of hope and opportunity and progress that was brought to us by mm-hmm. the election of Barack Obama and the wonderful way in which he governed mm-hmm. that all seemed to crash and burn violently with the election of Donald Trump. And so the analogy to Richard Nixon is uh, one that goes far beyond the way he went out, but also relates to the way he came in. But there's also, uh, Nixon talked about the silent majority, Trump uh, was there too, uh, and it does seem like part of what uh, elected Nixon, but certainly what elected Trump, is a feeling out uh, in the country that uh, what you saw as positive was not positive to them. And that you were missing uh, what it w- the way that it was falling on people all around the country who uh, were not like your constituents in Brooklyn, right? And and were not uh, as uh, enthusiastic about Obama as as you were. And Richard <laughs> Nixon was elected uh, as a result of a backlash yeah. to the progress in the civil rights movement. Donald Trump was elected in part as a result of a backlash to the election of Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. Historians will be able to confirm that reality, but it's plain as day as far as I can tell Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of what actually happened. That is not to say that every American who voted for Donald Trump is a racist, Mm -hmm. but every racist in America voted for Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And that should be troubling to everyone Mm -hmm. in this country. You're a New York guy. I grew up in New York. I, I, I feel like Trump has been part of my life for my entire existence. I'm curious, when does he come onto your radar? Do you have a memory of when you start thinking about Donald Trump? Obviously, it's long before he is a uh, politician. Donald Trump as the casino uh-huh. mogul was probably my earliest memory of him being prominent on the landscape. Mm-hmm. As I got older and you learn more about some of the Just ways... Just sort of like a rich guy that you knew had something to do with casino. Rich guy <laughs> who was always in the news and yeah. there was some <laughs> scandal connected to his personal life that uh-huh. was always splashed on the front page of the New York Post or yeah. the Daily News right. was how I remember his uh, rise in New York City. Yeah. Do you see any connection between that guy and the the guy who you are now so concerned with as being president? Or is it just like, is it so different? Is it, there are people who think, oh, there's a straight line. He's exactly the same person. He's doing the same thing. And then there are people who look at it and say, you know, he just like, something changed. He was uh, into being rich and being a character and uh, having fun. And now he took this darker turn in the minds of a lot of Democrats uh, going toward uh, 
all these policies that people didn't ever think would be associated with him. You go back to like the Ted Cruz attack with him, uh, on him rather, that the New York values stuff, right? Like there was a point where Donald Trump was more associated with that kind of uh, thinking. Well, Donald Trump has gone from playing a starring role in the lifestyles of the rich and shameless to the president of the United States of America. That's a fact that should shock the conscience of everyone. But I think if you look at his early history, Mm -hmm. it would be best to begin with his queen's roots Mm -hmm. as an outer borough individual Mm -hmm. at a time that in New York City there was a significant amount of racial turmoil. In some ways, Donald Trump is like Archie Bunker with a scowl Mm -hmm. who has now been given all of this power and in some ways has acted upon it in ways that undermine the notion of bringing Americans together Mm -hmm. regardless of race and religion. Mm -hmm. I think he might uh, think that that was a compliment, that you think that he's uh, still connected to that Queens Atterborough mentality. That's probably correct. (laughs) Um, What do you... uh, Do you worry about... You're involved with crafting the messaging for the House Democrats now. We are, as we keep saying, two weeks in. Already you have people talking about impeachment. Uh, about uh, going after him in every which way, suing him. How does that sustain? Uh, we've got a lot of uh, a lot of time left, and a lot of things that uh, a president can do in four years, and then maybe it'll be eight years. Uh, is it? Can Democrats get too far ahead of themselves on this? I don't think so. We have two jobs as Democrats as it relates to uh, interacting with the public at large. First, we have to alleviate the anxiety that exists amongst many in the American people that we are helpless in the face of the Donald Trump onslaught. Mm -hmm. Many Americans are looking to congressional Democrats to be uh, the first line of the resistance movement in pushing back against the things that Donald Trump, Steve Bannon, mm-hmm. and all of the co-conspirators that work with him in the United States Congress are attempting to do in this country. Mm-hmm. We have to alleviate the anxiety. The second thing that we have to do is harness the energy uh, that really has manifested itself in so many ways, including the day after the inauguration, mm-hmm. with millions of people mm-hmm. gathering in Washington, D.C. and around the country to express opposition to some of the things that Donald Trump has stood for Mm -hmm. uh, throughout his life and as a presidential candidate. But if we're talking about impeachment two weeks in from some of your I haven't heard anyone mention impeachment. Joaquin Castro uh, said impeachment. Ted Lieu said to me uh, that he thinks that if if you guys take the House in 2018, that uh, impeachment will be sort of the first thing that uh, is a first order of business. Uh, So some of your colleagues are talking about it. You're not saying that. But whether it's that or any, we're already so, the, the pitch is so high, and it's connecting to that energy that you talk out on this, uh, talked about that's out on the streets. Where, where do you go from, from here if we're already at this level? And it's February. It's Donald Trump's <laughs> job as the president of the United States of America and as the head of state mm-hmm. to bring the country together and stop dividing us in ways that seem intentional. Take, for example, what was done shamefully 
as it relates to the statement that was released on Holocaust Remembrance right. Day. But I'm asking you about Democrats, right? I know that he's given you, uh, in your mind, a lot of material to work with. But in uh, choosing the battles and choosing how far to turn things up, I mean, are we just going to have the alarm bells ringing nonstop for the next three and a half years? Well, no member of Democratic leadership has talked about impeachment. That would obviously be premature. And we're not going to be as irresponsible, in my view, as the individuals on the other side of the aisle were Mm -hmm. in terms of dealing with Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. They deliberately engaged in a strategy for eight years of the Obama administration of obstruction today, Mm -hmm. obstruction tomorrow, obstruction forever. Yeah. So the first point is Washington Republicans have zero credibility Mm -hmm. on the issue of lecturing Democrats about engaging in presidential etiquette. We will decide what makes sense in terms of the rules of engagement as it relates to the current president of the United States of America. It will be a principled resistance movement Mm -hmm. anchored in values as Mm -hmm. opposed to political gain. Mm -hmm. Mitch McConnell, as the lead Republican, said his top priority Mm -hmm. was to make Barack Obama a one-term president. And the obstruction that followed took place in the midst of two failed wars in the worst economy since the Great Depression. That was reckless governmental behavior for the purpose of political gain. Isn't your top priority to get Donald Trump out of the White House? No, our top priority (laughs) is to do uh, the right thing for the American people in terms of improving their lives Mm -hmm. and alleviating the economic anxiety that exists that is anchored in things like wage stagnation, underemployment, Mm -hmm. the high cost of a college education, Mm -hmm. uh, and the erosion of pensions. What Donald Trump has done over his first 12 or 13 days here in Washington, D.C., is do anything but try to deal with alleviating Mm -hmm. the economic pain being experienced by the American people. And that's the problem. Democrats want to be able to focus on Raising the minimum wage, expanding the earned income tax credit, adjusting the Social Security cost of living formula so that seniors Mm -hmm. can finally receive a meaningful increase uh, on their monthly Social Security check. These are things that can be done to improve the lives of working families, middle class folks and senior citizens. We're all caught in this web of distraction Mm -hmm. because of the unnecessary pain and confusion and chaos and carnage that Donald Trump is visiting upon the American people. Mm -hmm. That should end so we can get back to dealing with the economic issues, the bread and butter issues that are very important uh, to the people that I represent and others do here in Washington. Do you have any faith that it will to get to where you want it to be? That remains to be seen. But sometimes the closer... Is there any way that Donald Trump could be a successful president in your mind? I'm (laughs) not sure. Keeping an open mind. <laughs> uh, let me ask you one last question about uh, about New York. Uh, the mayor, Bill de Blasio, is uh, structuring his campaign. It seems like very much as a campaign against Donald Trump. Uh, you are a guy who's thought about running for mayor yourself, not running uh, this year, <laughs> should be said. Is that a right way to go about this? And I mean that in terms of thinking about uh, governing what you're talking about, thinking about... Uh, democratic politics, where it just becomes uh, all opposition to Trump? Well, Bill de Blasio is the mayor 
of the city of New York is the chief executive officer. And so his top focus should be on governing the city on a day-to-day basis. In the era of Donald Trump, he, of course, like the rest of us, have to focus on trying to play defense and stop some of the damaging things that the Trump administration wants to visit upon the people of Mm -hmm. New York from happening. But I would urge Mayor de Blasio to do so in the context of working with the congressional delegation, Mm -hmm. starting with Democratic leader Chuck Schumer, Mm -hmm. as well as Senator Gillibrand and those of us who are in the House of Representatives Mm -hmm. who are fully committed to the job of stopping Donald Trump from hurting the people of New York City. All right. Hakeem Jeffries, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much.